You're listening to Fundraising Radio, a podcast about fundraising for early stage startups. The major rule that we follow here is no bullshit on this podcast. No music to relax you, no advertisements of our sponsors. We only talk about fundraising here and nothing else. So let's jump into the episode. And today as a guest speaker, we have Victor Joe, founder and CEO at Sentinel Tech that was acquired by DT in 2019. And because Victor raised a lot of his capital in Asian markets, we will talk about how US-based founders can actually look over the border and find capital outside of the United States. So Victor, let's kick it off by you giving us some background on yourself and on Sentinel Tech. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Sentinel for having me here. Um, so my name is Victor. Um, my company is called Sentinel Tech. It was, uh, it was founded back in 2016 it was actually founded in los angeles but we eventually moved to china the company was mainly focusing on automatic customer service systems solutions which we can call it customer service chatbot ai solutions for banking industry and insurance industry so we know those both both of the industry has a lot of uh, manual operator works to direct you to the right traffic and help you with some uh, simple task so which can be easily replaced by a chatbot in a lot of different ways so this was the original business model started from back in 2016. We eventually serve a lot of big uh, insurance company and bank, uh, banking industries in China, including Citic Bank, China Citic Bank, China Merchant Bank, and et cetera. So yeah, so we, um, <clears throat> we, um, we gather our end around actually back in the United States. Uh, it, it is actually Chinese investors. And uh, we eventually moved back to Shenzhen, uh, southern part of China, a large city, uh, as our uh, well, new headquarters, you can say, in China. And uh, we uh, we raised the uh, uh, after probably after a year, a year and a half, we raised the pre-A round. Um, we raised uh, pretty much actually two rounds, so we can call it. There's actually one more round between our angel and the pre-A round, uh, a small round. And uh, for the pre-air round, we raised with the, uh, uh, it's a more a strategic investment, not from a VC firm, but a strategic investment from a big company, um, a pre-IPO company is going, going, on, uh, going on public very soon. And they have uh, extensive backgrounds as well as the resources in the banking industry, which is uh, suitable for us as well. So uh, yeah, uh, I guess my uh, uh, raising story is a little bit unconventional compared to other uh, VC VC back the company, yep. so yeah, I can see what I can share today. <laughs> sounds sounds like it's going to be an interesting episode. So first question is going to be about you know your first round that you've raised from strategic investors. How did it happen that you were like okay, we started a company in Los Angeles, by the way, great city to be in, uh, and then you were like okay, now we're going to raise from Chinese investors. Why did that happen? How did that happen? And how did you reach out to? strategic investors there in China while being based in the United States? Absolutely. Um, so, well, uh, a little bit of story back in, back in my college time. I'm, uh, uh, I'm a UCLA grad. Um, back in 2050, I was working at the uh, professional lab. Uh, I'm a computer science major, so I was working at the NLP lab, which stands for Natural Language Processing, pretty much the, uh, uh, the, the vertical that um, uh, of the uh, computer science subject that we how to teach you can you can say like how to teach computer science uh, or code to understand the semantical layer of the language and how to process it so i was uh, i was in the professor's lab uh, during that time uh, during that summer and uh, uh, 
uh, I, I found the technology pretty fascinating, and I think there should be a lot of merchant use. So I started to explore it on the on the merchant level, um, but we didn't actually do anything until 2016. I think it was 2016 February when um, Facebook event, uh, officially launched their Messenger solution, uh, Messenger platform, uh, Messenger bot platform, which allows the uh, uh, peoples to start to uh, add chatbot on Messenger, so which be, which means that people can directly message a business instead of people replying it. Uh, the chatbot can directly reply it using the Messenger channel. So uh, in the United States, there's a lot of small businesses are running on on the Facebook platforms, or re they're requiring they're leaning towards uh, Facebook for them uh, for their customer acquisition. So. Uh, back in that time, we think um, this is, will be a pretty cool lead generation tools uh, for using chatbots to do so. So that's why that's where the first kind of product started. Um, uh, we we kind of like uh, create the uh, first version of the chatbot building tools, which helps the uh, small business to create certain kinds of chatbot um, <clears throat> can help on the customer service as well as the uh, lead generation sales sales request, simple sales request. Which does not, uh, these kind of the, the tool doesn't need uh, small business uh, owners or anything to write any code, but can easily can kind of like drag and drop kind of thing to build chatbot. There's a lot of tools like this in today's like uh, uh, one of those very uh, very uh, famous company I can say is ManyChat and uh, ChatView and those kind of companies. So we were like uh, probably uh, first batch of the company in that kind of wave. Um, Started this whole thing, and but we eventually there's a lot of there was there's a lot of story kind of happens down down the road, and uh, we actually the first model was not built very correctly for uh, small business in the United States, and but we actually get uh, spotted by uh, our angel investors in one of the um, uh, you can call it a startup battlefield, but uh, it's not <laughs> it's not a large event, but <laughs> it's a more like a collegiate level kind of a startup battlefield, so. Um, uh, first of all, I'm a Chinese immigrant, so it is actually built up by a Chinese students union in uh, uh, for UCLA and USC, and uh, where we uh, we met our angel investors. So yeah, so I mean, like uh, in that uh, in, uh, in, uh, during that talk, uh, we found that uh, even though we don't uh, in China in Chinese market, they, uh, the WeChat, which we can call it equivalent to Facebook in the United States, but they don't actually just still don't have the uh, chatbot functionality yet. But uh, on the business level, there's actually a lot of the um, uh, large business required these kind of solutions. And especially AI is booming. Um, back in 2016, there's a lot of AI company that successful raising, raise fundraising stories. So mm -hmm. um, that's why we decided to go to China to take a look. That's where the whole story started, I guess. <laughs> nice, nice. Yeah, that that does make some sense. So uh, now let's talk just a little bit more about technicality of actually company structuring. So you were U.S.-based, raising in China and working in China. Why were you still based in the U.S.? Or did you, after you realized that mm -hmm. you know most of the interest in the company is in China and in Chinese markets, you moved the company there, or did you keep it in the mm -hmm. United States? Understood. Yeah. So. Um, I guess uh, I have to say is uh, well uh, when we started the company is in the United States because uh, I was uh, I was just recently graduated from uh, back in then I was just recently graduated from UCLA so um, we eventually started a company because 
one of the things is that we started to target small business. So uh, one of the differences between uh, Chinese market and U.S. market is that, um, especially for SaaS companies, SaaS solutions for small business, that's where we if, if, uh, originally target target towards. Um, United States market, or or should I say, the advertising marketing uh, marketing side has uh, much more mature tools or um, mechanisms for promoting a certain services to small business. Um, which means that uh, we uh, we probably have an easier shot to get company interested in these kind of tools than the Chinese market because we are targeting small business. So we need those kind of a we need a lead generation for ourselves, even though we are a lead generation platforms. So um, <laughs> so given that kind of traits, uh, I was uh, I was uh, we were thinking like the United States prop, uh, market is probably the first way to go. And also one of the one of the another reasons that the uh, NLP model was, uh, was initially built out using the English model. So we actually have to do a lot of work to convert into Chinese model. But um, yeah, back in then, the one of the reasons is that uh, first of all, the NLP engine is not that kind of mature. I mean, not compared to the company today. But um, so and also, uh, small business has a lot of different customized requests. So we can kind of like a, we 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 would like to start from industry. That's where we initially started. We started from car dealerships industry. So we built out a certain. Uh, so when you go to uh, like a tier three kind of a car dealerships, uh, not those like uh, not like BMW USA, but more like a, let's say BMW Santa Monica. Say. Um, for these kind of tier three uh, 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 dealerships, they 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 having their live chat, uh, live chat agents on their line to help you with the inventory request or if you need like a thousand miles checkups kind of service request. So that that's where we initially focusing on. But even with that kind of vertical, it, it's a little bit bored for for a customer service for a chatbot with uh, for a chatbot that designed to built by non coder for those industry. So there's a lot of things need to be taken consider. So we actually uh, met a lot of obstacle there. So and it was eventually proved not be profitable because um, customers, uh, car dealerships owners usually use those kind of solutions, which can be actually much more, much more cheaper than uh, uh, like third world operator systems and something like that. So we were like kind of like met into this kind of obstacle. So that's why we're thinking, you know what? Let's let's take a look. Let's take a look. Uh, how about serving those big big company in China, which will actually make it easier because the request requirements will be simpler, straightforward, because it's going to be case by case. It's probably not going to be scalable, but at least it can let the company live and uh, we can start hiring people. So back in the day, it's more like, um, like uh, you know, like uh, one way or another. Another. So we <laughs> took the routes <laughs> back to China. Well, I, I'm personally born and raised in China until after my high school, so I'm not I'm I'm not a stranger there, but. Um, since my almost my entire business life was in the United States, so back in then, so uh, it was uh, it was still a challenge for us. Right, right. That's that's really interesting. We're going to talk about that a little bit more uh, about this, you know, transition to China and how it can be done by other U.S.-based founders. But first, question right. is about uh, you know, focus on that revenue. So when you were reaching out to those smaller car dealerships in the U.S. Why exactly didn't that work out? So you mentioned that it wasn't profitable for you specifically or for car dealerships. I didn't quite catch that part. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, I can go detail on that part. So, um, well, well, we initially uh, partnered with some of, uh, some of the uh, 
some of the uh, car dealerships like uh, in Southern California, like uh, uh, New Polexes, Right Toyota, uh, these kinds of uh, small business. But we also partner with a small um, uh, agency company, which uh, media agency company, which they uh, do a lot of the. Uh, uh, they they have most of their clients are car dealerships, first of all, and they help them to do their marketing campaign. They're kind of like the marketing genius, marketing savvy for those dealership company. So we started, um, we we started to reach out to them, and they think it's a pretty cool idea as well. But uh, one of the things our chatbot can do on their system is, you know, let's say if you want to check uh, with the uh, dealerships, let let's say if you have a silver uh, Toyota Civic, let's say, um, what kind of inventory do you have? Um, well, the chatbot can answer that question easily. But usually their operator can so that's kind of like a, what we want to go into it but we eventually find out that well you know even though you told them that you have the inventory or not they are not gonna they're not gonna purchase the car online right but the whole purpose for the uh, for the uh, the life agent on the car dealership website is to get you in the door it's get your contact information and get someone someone actually expert to help you along the way and you're not gonna get offended not answer the question because now you're not in a rush Event, uh, especially for people who went to car dealership website to check out the cars, you're not in a rush. Let's say mm -hmm. Let's, they're not saying like I have to purchase by by the end of the day or something. So right. the chatbot is not kind of like so suitable for in that kind of scenario. We kind of like think it like like way too easier. So with that kind of purpose, um, the agent they're hiring to answer a question for the customers. They don't need any like professional training. They just need to be polite and answer. Saying, you know what? Um, thanks for answering this question. Thanks for asking this question. Uh, may I get your name, email, phone number, and let someone professionally help you? Well, customers usually are fine with that. They're waiting for a callback. So they're, then that, that their part uh, their part of job is done. So usually for that, those kind of a uh, uh, agency, you can you can hire easily, like within probably like 800 bucks per month uh, from uh, some third world country has a low mm -hmm. pay rate. Yeah, right. So that's why our customers, <laughs> our chatbot solution is not not uh, not like considered like can be like profitable or um, uh, like increase the efficiency for the company. Yes. Right. That's really interesting and unfortunate when you realize that you know your solution is not really a great solution, not really needed. That's right. that's sad. <laughs> but you've made a successful transition specifically to. Uh, Chinese markets and let's talk about how you managed to acquire the initial customers. So uh, you said that you know it's, it was still a challenge for you to transfer the whole business to the Chinese markets. But how did mm -hmm. the initial contact happen? So you mentioned that uh, you decided to go through you know, bigger firms and make more custom uh, solutions for them mm -hmm. specifically. But how do you manage to get in touch with those people? You know, if you didn't have, as right. as as I might understand, you didn't have like huge network in China at that time. Uh huh. Right. That's uh yeah exactly. That's that's where we actually are. It's um we don't have any connection in China back then, especially on the business side. I mean, like uh, maybe from a little bit from our parents' side, but not exactly. My parents are in different kind of industry, so. So actually, the first few customers were introduced by our investors. So that's, that's also one of the other things that um, we, uh, I mean, like I personally very appreciate our venture investor is um, is that not only he bring, uh, brought up the uh, the initial capitals, but he also brought us the opportunity to bidding with other big company with those uh, big projects. 
which means that um, usually um, it's the same as the United States as well. It, usually those kind of big companies projects, they have, uh, you have a couple of, couple of companies, startup company or mature company or developing companies are like bidding for the same projects, right? So you have, well, eventually you have to use your technology to, to win a bid, but you have to have someone to beat you to the door to get the ticket for that bidding. So initially we had, we were, we were like, uh, we were getting those tickets directly from our investors. Um, for the first, first couple, a couple of first few months for uh, back in 2017 and 2018. So uh, during the end, uh, I mean, like the second half of the, the second half of the 2017 and the first half of 2018, we were like constantly working on uh, the projects from the China City banks and China Merchant Bank. Both uh, both the banks are having this kind of urgent need for having for having these kind of customer service systems. Uh, smart customer service solution for uh, for their uh, for their um, operating center. So uh, what we uh, what we are doing uh, for the bidding is that usually for that bidding, this each company is giving for approximately 30 days. To they they're gonna send out the same data set. It, it's very similar to what we currently have, like data scientist context looks like. Uh, but each company are given to the same data sets. Uh, which uh, you require for the for the chatbot. This data set is just a set of questions, like frequently asked questions from customers, probably from the past 60 days that their system received. And for those questions, they're going to feed it in directly into the uh, chatbot to see who who gets the most correct answer. Well, you have a lot of training set, um, but uh, the question the question set, the actual test set, uh, is not going to be uh, published until the the day for public bidding. So it's like it's like a contact. It's, it's you can say like like an exam. So we have to prepare that in 30 days, convert the entire model from Chinese to English, and um, I'm sorry, English to Chinese, and um, and uh, and especially not just the translation part. The most important part is there's a lot of abbreviate like uh, I, uh, you can professional jargon and terminologies for banking industry, and, and especially given Chinese, there's a lot lot more variants. Compared to English, so the tokenization start from the tokenizations until the semantic understanding layer. We have to like retrain the entire model, and we also have to hire a lot of uh, a lot of like writers for us for to help us to increase knowledge base because it's not enough for us to do it as well. So that's on the technology part. On the business part, we have to get used to the kind of way like how how we can help a big company kind of thing because it's not straightforward. Like okay, these are requirements. You just finish it. It's like how you need to put into those big companies, uh, 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 like project managers or their VPs, choose to think like uh, what's their eventual goal with that system, right? Because a lot of times their eventual goals or their ultimate what their ultimate needs are not that kind of clear from the paper, from the final requirements. So even though we just, uh, even though the request is just for like how the customers uh you're using automatically chatbot to answer a customer's question we also build a, a auxiliary solutions for to check to help to check their uh, customer service operator if they're answering the correct sentences so which means that it has a rating kind of system to help to know like if your operator are behaved correctly if they answer question correctly as a passive way so instead of like so a chatbot is what used to as a, as a sort of front to filter out the question. If it's an easy question, you just directly answer it. If it's a hard question, mm -hmm. you chatbot uh, to the operator. Mm -hmm. And there's a part of the auxiliary solution which we created, none of other competitors are created, is to help the uh, uh, operator on the second tier 
to make sure they them answer the qu correct question. Because at that point, chatbot don't know what exactly the uh, correct answer is, but he knows the range. Like it has to be one of the three. You can say that. So based on these kind of things, and also like uh, to test it, like how fast the uh, customer, the uh, operator is speaking, like uh, what's the emotional tones, and if using if there's any using any um, uh, profanity language or anything like to detect for these kind of like uh, like scoring kind of systems. So which can help to uh, to increase the uh, quality of the customer service. So mm -hmm. that part of the system we create as well as a free to provide to our services. Um, so that's actually the biggest reason why we win the bid uh, for the Chinese Civic Bank, and um, we eventually took the entire thing to uh, uh, we win the bid uh, against the other three company, uh, actually other five company, and uh, well, that's actually first the, our first large customer in China. Yes. Nice. That's really cool. So here, let's move on to comparing U.S. and China. I mean, let's let's say Asian markets in general. So, um, you know, you have done this successful transition from U.S. to Asian markets. Would you recommend anyone else to do the same thing, or do you think that's not really a very good option? <laughs> well, uh, I have to say, like right now. Um, well, first of all, Chinese market. Well, there's a there's a, like a old saying in the and and the and and uh well i can say the marketplace but uh there's two market in in the, in the world the one is chinese market the other is world market so you can say like the how complicated how different is uh, from chinese market and the rest of the world so um i what i recommend is like if you if you know especially first of all fluent with chinese and and uh, these kind of other like a uh, uh, soft uh, hard skill um, I can say uh, it's a it's very it's a worth of venture to start uh, to see how to uh, do business with Chinese companies or Chinese uh, whether it's small company or customers, but it's uh, it's a total different kind of story like uh, uh, just from you know starting from hiring and from customer acquisition from business development these kind of things are like largely different like, but ultimate thing is like you have to have a good pro good products right. Um, I mean, companies are different from all over the world, but they have similar needs when it comes to acquire customers. They have similar needs when it comes to customer support. They have similar needs when it comes to business development. These kind of uh, these kind of small things. So I guess the uh, one of the uh, one of the most important thing is um, understand the mark uh, uh, what the local market actually want and like a differentiate a little bit. That's part of the uh, that's part of the things you, uh, for a business owner to go to China needs to do. And uh, from the capital side, is um, it, it is uh, it is uh, it, it can be considered as a similar, um, like the way, like the how, temp how what kind of templates that uh, VC uh, VC owners or partner VC partners are looking for from the startup company. So, um, well, um, these part of things are fortunately uh, a lot more similar than the customers comparing to United States customer and Chinese customer. Um, but one of the things I would like to say is if you're a SaaS company, um, like a SaaS model, uh, providing SaaS services to small business in, um, uh, provides to small business, um, in China, uh, the, uh, whether it's a, if you're a SaaS company providing small business or you're more consumer-based company, uh, like app or services to, uh, to directly promote you to regular consumer, it's a whole different story for a customer acquisition. So I, I, I strongly advise you have for a U.S.-based 
uh, entrepreneur, you need to find an expert for uh, like a market savvy uh, in in China and Chinese local market to let them do the marketing part. But it's definitely worth the venture to see like uh, what kind of needs because obviously China has a uh, has a very large amount of uh, potential customers if you can do it right. Mm-hmm. Right, that's very true. <laughs> Everyone knows that. So, um, one more question I had about that. No, actually, I have right. no more questions about that. I had one last question about transition. Right. So, you had a successful transition. It was so successful that eventually you got acquired in 2019. So, how did the acquisition happen? What can you just tell us a little bit more about the acquisition? Sure, uh, I'll share what I can. Uh, what I can. It's a uh, it's an unconventional uh-huh. kind of acquisition, but um, yeah. So uh, I can say I, I'm not saying it's like very successful. It's a fair deal, I have to say. But um, it was the right moment, the right times. Because uh, first of all, AI company or AI startups, or uh, especially on the customer service NLP kind of side, company are have a very very fierce competitions back in 2019, 2018, and 2019. So. Before, when it started back in like let's say 2017 or 2016 when we first come to China to like investigate how it looks like um, there's a lot of company already in this field I have to say but the, the competition is not so fierce so let's say if you have a, a, a certain company open the bid or uh, providing kind of a SaaS services there's um, you can say the competitors well less than 10 maybe right now it's probably well, around the like 500 or something. Yeah, there's a lot of lot of companies are focusing on the same thing. So one of the things is that um, the customer service kind of, it's not like we are fear of competition. It's just people have less faith about NLP solutions for customer service. It's because there's mm-hmm. a lot of the companies are not so um, focusing on their technology than providing like less qualified uh, chatbot to company, which actually lowers down the faith from the consumer side. It's just like when you talk to a customer chatbot, you, you just keep pushing zero to get the operator because you probably just don't want to waste time, even though you might think that the customer, uh, the chatbot can solve your problem, but you don't want to waste the time to try it, right? So that's kind of like uh, causing the general customers to lose in faith. So we uh, we start to shrink down our product, mo- uh, our product models from the customer service system to the rating system we created back in the first bit and uh, having that as a, as a helper tools for for customer service, but those kind of things, solutions, usually only suitable for large company, right? Only large company has like a large operation center. They need a kind of software to to monitor their status for the op, uh, for their customer service. For small companies, probably only have like I don't know, like five, ten operators that can easily manage manually. So that's why our product models shrinking and our um, uh, our customer base are shrinking as well. So it was actually a downside, but uh, the acquisition is uh, is is from a different aspect. is uh, is for a pre-IPO company, their financial needs and all this kind of other things. So that's why um, we actually managed to to found a way for the mergers uh, between our pre-investors as well as the uh, uh, the uh, our uh, uh, the company eventually merge us. So we actually found a sweet spot to help them uh, what they need and help us what we need as well. So I think it's like the right moment at the right time. It's not like, um, well, you know, like uh, um, those kind of like conventional uh, uh, acquisition, big story. <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't have those kind of uh, like large acquisitions because the company model is so successful. It was from a different route, I have to say. Mm-hmm. 
right? I mean, still an acquisition, yo. So that's still good. So let's move on to more current events. And as an acquired customer, I mean, I'll rephrase that question. So first question is going to be, what do you do now in 2020 in the pandemic? Right. Um, <laughs> so 2020 is uh, COVID-19 years for like um, or the pandemic years, which causing everything running slowly. So I was uh, the first part of 2020. I was actually, I was actually, we were still finishing certain things from, uh, from the merger. And the second part of this uh, 2020, I was looking at new directions. But right now, I was currently focusing on a telemed telemedicine um, projects uh, with uh, um, with a few like a pre early early venture capitals and um, and some of the. Uh, uh, serious entrepreneur as well. As we can see, like uh, telemedicine is booming because of the pandemics. There's field industry booming because and telemedicine is definitely one. Telehealth is definitely one one of those. And uh, we also from the from especially from the regulations as well as the uh, uh, state policy, we can see that people uh, uh, from practitioners and also the government are starting to uh, first of all cut practitioners' logs. Uh, telemedicine, especially mental health practitioners, um, and uh, for government in the policy kind of standpoint, uh, kind of like open more loose and loose um, for the uh, uh, for the uh, pe uh, for practitioners to practice medicine over internet. So and also we can see that this part this is going to be the future trend for a lot of the uh, a lot of part of the uh, uh, the healthcare industry. It's not going to be taken entirely over. I mean, a lot of the a lot of actual physical exams you have to do in hospital. You have you have to have hospital facilities, but there's actually a lot of things you can free some of the practitioners um, from from working from come to the clinics and sitting in the office all day, which can totally replace by telemedicine. And especially there's a so so imbalanced kind of like a, a healthcare forces among among uh, across different states. Let's say some of the states doesn't have enough uh, practitioners that we needed. Uh, which states also allows for like cross-state practice um, during the pandemic, but these kind of trends are actually continue for some of the states. So telemedicine actually helps the um, uh, helps uh, uh, patients and practitioners in a lot of different ways. So that's part of the uh, that's the uh, one of the directions I would like to bet on, uh, maybe for the next four to five years, um, mm -hmm. four to five years to to start uh, to working on it. Yeah. Nice. That's really cool. And best of luck to you there. So one more question is the standard question that I ask pretty much every speaker of mine who has gone through an acquisition or any kind of exit. So question is, do you do angel investments or uh, mentoring other startups? Yes, I did. So um, I um, currently do it as well. So for angel investment, we actually have a have a small kind of groups for like uh, previous uh, entrepreneur for helping helping people helping new stage uh, uh, companies out and uh, also I'm part of the uh, uh, mental process for the uh, some of the uh, uh, incubators but more on a collegial level like small incubators more helping on the student kind of side but also I'm like helping some of the mature companies for like specific on uh, like say business developments in China. Or even customer acquisition in the United States as well. These kind of like uh, uh, different kind of routes. And uh, personally, I did I do angel investment um, for some of the small companies, in which some directions I bet on. Uh, I have a lot of directions I'm looking at. Um, uh, uh, for example, like financially, uh, I uh, I uh, I'm looking at some of the uh, 
like challenging banks, um, uh, uh, financial services, and also like telemedicine around, uh, health around, healthcare, anything really with healthcare a company, because uh, telemedicine is is uh, is a big direction. It's not just for well, m the major part of people think about telehealth or telemedicine is mostly for practitioners uh, practice medicine with uh, with patients, right? But there's actually a lot of things come around. Let's say insurance clearinghouse and uh, out now reimbursement uh, company with helping for PA issues, a company for managing uh, managing practitioners, healthcare workers across the across the, across the internet and there's a lot of companies like a like a like a pre SaaS models for telehealth industry companies. So telehealth mm -hmm. is going uh, to get increased. Uh, it's it's I mean like uh, it's increased drastically for the past couple for the past couple months. And these companies are out uh, like like a part of the uh, uh, telehealth kind of cycles are getting a lot of customers as well. So and also like uh, let's say e-commerce is another direction as we're looking at it as well. Uh, e-commerce even though with the pandemics, but E-commerce actually increased super, super fast because of pandemics as well. And uh, some of the trends actually can be continued after, even after a pandemic. We're about, we're in the post-pandemic kind of world, but right. um, there's some of the directions can continue from the pandemic as well. Yeah. So, yes. Absolutely. Nice, nice directions like those. So here we're moving on to the last question of today's episode, which is a call to action. So, Victor, what's the one thing you want the listener to do as soon as the episode is over? And also keep in mind that most of our listeners are uh, early stage entrepreneurs. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think one of the advice I want to give to uh, to uh, to the viewers uh, is uh, uh, to the listeners is that um, understand your industry. So we made a lot of mistakes with by not understanding the industry thoroughly, by, by doing some internet research, by just talking to some of the business owners, but not understanding the industry clearly. So I think it's hard to understand the industry, but it's very, very necessary to, for you to completely understand your industry before you, uh, before you actually create a large step. I mean, you create some kind of MVP to test the industry, but uh, do not waste a lot of time before you understand the industry clearly. So. Um, I mean, like, uh, I definitely recommend for to people to kind of like get focused on the uh, telehealth industry. I think there's a lot of things we can help on this. Um, uh, <laughs> I, I don't want to say broken, but um, there's a lot of things we can fix for the United States healthcare industry. So I will like uh, I will invite everyone to to be interested to to look into the industry. And uh, well, if there's any chance, we maybe can talk about it and uh, through some copycat or something. I hope one day I'll, I'll see that day coming when the healthcare will be fixed in the US, but I'm like 99.99% .99 sure it will never happen. So <laughs> best of luck to you there, though. Um, my call to action is going to be um, go to the description of this episode. I'll leave a link to Victor's LinkedIn. I'll also leave a link to a few things that we mentioned during this episode. And also, I'll leave a link to the type form that you just fill out. And if I like your startup, if I like your idea, I will connect you to mentors and actively investing investors. So do that. Take your time to check out the description of the episode. And as usually, have a good day.